I'd sooner stick it out here than run away in a tin hearse. Now, wait a minute, Professor. There's just three things wrong with that statement. First, we're not running away. We're obeying orders. Second, she's not made a tin. And third, she's no hearse. She's an M3 air-cooled job that can cross 200 miles of the desert as easy as you'd walk around that Piccadilly circus of yours. Well, I'm going to stand here arguing with you. Stick around if you want to. Let the Nazis mop you up. You spend the rest of the war in a prison camp in Berlin, but not me. When I go into Berlin, I'm going to be riding that tank. The same one that's standing there with the name Lulu Bell written on her. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. It's coming to your galaxy this summer. Rebellion and romance. Aliens from a thousand worlds. Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Wookiee Genome Project, the podcast about everything Star Wars that isn't Star Wars, but also with some Star Wars. I'm Diamond Rob Russo, the Sheriff of Nerdingham, and with me today is... Nobody! That's right, this is an experimental, uh, just right off the dome uh, type of uh, show. Uh, I felt like this is the one movie in our series where I couldn't find anybody who seemed to have any interest in the movie, but I think it's really great, and I've actually seen... um, Well, I don't want to spoil it. Uh, but on this show, we explore the pop culture DNA of the Star Wars films, which is to say the old adventure serials, cowboy films, comic books, and pulp fiction that shaped the saga we know and love today. This episode continues a special series where we will cover, or we are covering, I should say, seven films that Ryan Johnson screened for the cast of The Last Jedi. And we're pairing each of these with a chaser of classic Star Wars uh, mythology or story or what have you. This will take us right up to the release of The Last Jedi. So stick with us and be prepared. This week we're watching, or I should say this week I'm watching, Sahara, a 1943 war movie directed by Zoltan Korda and starring Humphrey Bogart and Lloyd Bridges. And we're chasing that with the 1983 Marvel comic story Hoth Stuff, the worst titled anything in Star Wars history. Yeah, doing this one a little bit, a uh, little bit, uh, gonna be a little bit lonely on this episode, but I th- hopefully you won't mind too much. Uh, I was kind of inspired by Mr. Johnny Grasso, who has done more than a few episodes of Rogue One, uh, a Star Wars podcast for winners. He's done more than a few of those entirely on his own, because as you know, when you have co-hosts and things like that, even regular co-hosts, you can't always get them to show up. And it's not because they're bad people. It's because people have lives and podcasts make no money. So I thought he did a pretty good job. He does do a pretty good job. I mean, he, he's inspired by uh, local uh, New York City metro area sports radio, which has a lot of dudes talking about stuff. They talk about stuff for several hours and they take calls. And yeah, he's got a point. I mean, in radio, that is pretty normal. But in podcasting, not as normal. Um, but it, the movie Sahara seemed like a great opportunity to try it out just to see what I could do. Because when I'm doing uh, movie episodes or episodes that are about especially old movies, uh, really old movies, um, I recognize that it's not always easy to find somebody who's willing to commit to doing that kind of thing. Be- not so much because of the time it takes, but because like you've got to actually watch an old movie to get prepared, take notes, kind of think about it. And then show up and you got to have something to say about it. And you don't know whether you're going to have anything to say about it. When you're talking about a Star Wars movie, we all know what we want to say. Because we've all seen those movies a dozen, two dozen, three dozen, four dozen times. But, you know, with the, you watch an old uh, war movie from the 40s and you don't even know whether you're going to like it. You don't even know whether you're going to have anything to say about it. Uh, not everybody is a film historian. I certainly am not really a film historian. Um, I dabble. But... You know, it's real talk here. It's it. This is uh, this show is not always going to be. It's not always going to be. Uh, I try to make them sound as good as they possibly can, but it's not always going to be 
reliable in the sense that you always know what you're going to get because it's a very high concept show and it demands a lot of its hosts. And so far I've been very lucky to have great guest hosts who know, really know what they're talking about and have a lot of things on their mind to share with this one. I don't know. I mean, it just, it just wasn't happening. Nobody seemed interested in poor Sahara, but I got to tell you, Sahara uh, is a absolutely fantastic movie. It's it's uh, I was blown away by how much I liked it. And I was actually really surprised because it was so familiar. And there's a reason for that, which I'll get into soon. But here's the old TV guide summary here. It's uh, it's a new tradition, but uh, tradition nonetheless. A tank crew stranded in the Sahara Desert must defend a well from a much larger group of thirsty Nazis. And I kid you not, that is literally what this movie is about. Normally, I don't want to do a plot breakdown here, but I think it's important because I'm going to be comparing this movie's plot with uh, other movies' plots that uh, have essentially the same story. So Humphrey Bogart is a uh, a tank commander, and he has uh, he's retreating from a battle. Um, a full retreat was was ordered. Uh, he has only um, two men in his crew left, not a full crew, and they're heading south across the Libyan desert to rejoin their command and they encounter and accumulate a motley collection of stragglers including uh, a guy named sergeant tambel of the sudanese army and his italian prisoner giuseppe uh, tambel says that he can lead the others to a nearby well um, and bogart at first insists on leaving the italian who is of course an enemy uh, of uh, the allied powers in the war uh, wants to leave him behind but doesn't get very far before he realizes that the only humane choices are really to either bring Giuseppe with them or to kill them in cold blood and he, he's going to opt for the former despite the obvious strain this will play on their uh, this uh, despite the obvious strain this will, will place on their supplies I told you to measure that water in a cup I wasn't thinking well, I'll do the thinking for you why don't you pick up all the canteens and bring them to me just a second we've got our own officer here I'll take my orders from him I'm glad you brought that up Williams I have something to say to the men, Sergeant. We've only one purpose. To save ourselves so that we can fight again. We've got to work together and have discipline. Sergeant Gunn was in command of this tank when we joined him. He's an experienced soldier, and it seems proper to me to ask him to continue in that capacity. I shall confer with him on the safety and conduct of the expedition, but immediate authority will rest with him. My canteen, Sergeant. Thank you, sir. Here you are, Frenchie. So en route to the well, uh, a German fighter plane strafes the tank, uh, mortally wounding Lloyd Bridges, father of Jeff Bridges, right? Uh, and injuring another soldier. So you know this is early in Lloyd Bridges' career because his character dies almost immediately. He'd, he'd be in other movies by the 50s. He'd be a pretty... pretty you know, he'd, he'd be a supporting actor who was getting quite a bit of work. He was in High Noon with Gary Cooper. Um, has a great, has a great uh, role there. Uh, so they shoot down the plane, and its pilot, uh, a guy named Von Schlettau, is captured. Uh, Bogart, Tambel, and the others arrive at an old well um, that is situated kind of amidst a sort of half-ruined structure of some kind. It all looks very old. The well is almost dry. I think they send Tambel down, and he, he checks it out, and it's like just letting out like mere drops of water at a time and it requires the, the the entire tank crew to stay a lot longer than they anticipated because they need to fill up their canteens for their water for themselves they need to have uh, water probably for their machine guns and they also need water for the probably for the the tank uh would need it as a coolant or something like that uh, i may be getting all this entirely wrong i don't know um so german scouts arrive soon afterwards and uh they're they're in a half track which is like sort of a half pickup truck and half tank. It's like a pickup truck with tank treads on the back. Uh, Bogart uh, ambushes the Germans and learns from one of them that their battalion is following close behind and is desperate for water as well. Bogart lies and tells them that they have plenty of water and sends them back to ask their commander if the Germans will make some kind of deal. When the German battalion arrives, Bogart alters the deal uh, to water for guns. Uh, which is to say he's demanding that uh, the much larger force surrender and then he'll give them water. At this point, the well has, in fact, completely dried up. Um, but Bogart knows that if he admits that, the Germans are certain to blast the well to bits, kill everyone, and just move on. Suppose we send those two Germans back to tell them there's plenty of water here. And suppose we hold them up for two or three days while they're trying to get it. And we could clear out of here quick. With a little luck, get through the German lines and back to our own. If we stay here, 
Maybe nobody will ever know what happened here. Or if it is worthwhile, or if it is all wasted. Well, if you'll excuse me, sir, nine of us with a couple of pea shooters doesn't make any sense at all. Gun, if it's our duty to try and delay this column, what's all the talk about? Let's give us our orders. I look at it this way. Because it is a hundred to one shot, because there's so much more than line of duty, because there's so little chance of any of us coming out of it, I felt I ought to put it up to you. They all got families at home, wives, mothers, and sweethearts. I ain't got none, so it doesn't matter about me. I know how you feel about it. Maybe having none, I know it even better. Whatever you decide, you better decide quick. I'll speak for Waco and Jimmy myself. Well, nobody minds giving his life, but this is throwing it away. Why? Why? Why did your people go about their business in London when the Germans were throwing everything in the book at them? Why did your little boats take the men off the beach at Dunkirk? Why did the Russians make a stand at Moscow? Why did the Chinese move whole cities thousands of miles inland when the Japs attacked them? Maybe they were all nuts. There's one thing they did do. They delayed the enemy and kept on delaying him until we got strong enough to hit him harder than he was hitting us. I ain't no general, but it seems to me that's one way to win. The Germans attempt to seize the well several times. Each time they get beaten back thanks to a... Uh, Oh, that's when they have the machine gun, right? So each time the uh, Germans attack, they get beaten back. But each time they attack, they kill a few more of uh, Bogart's men. So during one of these attacks, the captured pilot, the German pilot, uh, tries to escape. And he stabs uh, Giuseppe, um, who's supposed to be his ally, but he refuses to go with him. He refuses to make the escape. Giuseppe manages to warn uh, Humphrey Bogart's character but, and, then, and then collapses dead. Uh, the pilot knows that the well is dry and our heroes therefore cannot let him inform uh, the German uh, column of that fact. So uh, it, it, uh, it's actually Sergeant Tambul, the Sudanese man who chases uh, the German down and the two end up killing each other. Um, so the Germans still don't know the truth that the well is basically dry and they attempt another parlay. So uh, they're communicating this time with uh, another straggler that, uh, that Bogart picked up, who's a member of the free French army, um, so as you know, like at this at this point in the war, by 1943, I believe France had already been invaded, and of course the government of France at home surrenders, but all the French troops abroad do not surrender, and um, they continue fighting the Germans. Uh, so that's 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 his story. Um, so they try to reach an arrangement again. Um, nothing comes of it, and this time the German officer shoots the Frenchman in the back as he walks away, which is just kind of a pointless murder for its own sake, and it's one of uh, Several ways that the movie Sahara kind of drills into you how bad the Nazis are. The movie ends when um, the few remaining Germans launch one last attack. And it, but in an amazing scene, these like dehydrated, weakened uh, enemies just kind of inch closer. And one by one, they start dropping their weapons and just clawing their way towards the well, desperate to survive. And miraculously, one of the they, they'd been firing some field artillery or, or some like probably mortars or something like that at the at the um, shelter. And they ended up like breaking loose a reserve of water in the well and so it's now gushing water and uh bogart and um, one other allied survivor uh um set about like collecting uh their weapons while the germans like drink desperately and then they get marched uh, back to the allied forces as prisoners and you learn of a major allied victory at uh, el alamein um I believe is how it's pronounced. And this is like all the North Africa. If you've seen the movie Patton, it's this, it's the theater of war that's depicted at the very beginning of the movie Patton. Um, I read your book. You magnificent bastard. That, that one, George C. E. Scott. So as I said, this is a, this is a remake of a remake of a remake. And the first was a 1929 British silent film. I cannot find. It's just called lost patrol. And it was based on a book, a uh, novel from a few years earlier, I think 1927, 1926, that was called Lost Patrol, or I think it was actually just called Patrol. Uh, it was by, I believe the author's name was McDonald, Philip McDonald. Um, I could not find, uh, it must still be under copyright, because I thought it's, it seemed like something that I would be able to find, you'd be able to find like on like Project Gutenberg or something, but apparently it's still under copyright somewhere, so you can't find it. Um, I'd have to buy it, and I'm not convinced that I would enjoy it, so I didn't go that far. Um, but these are, you know, so Lost Patrol, both versions of it are World War One movies that take place in Iraq or the Mesopotamian desert, as it was known at the time. Um, the John Ford version was remade in the Soviet Union as Trinadsat, uh, which translates to, I think, the 13, referring to the 13 uh, people in the group. Um, that was done in 1936 or 1937. Who really knows? 
Um, you can actually see this version of the story on YouTube for free, um, which is how I watched it. And uh, just remember to set, uh, turn on the closed captions and there'll be an English option that will have a kind of crappy but serviceable translation of what they're saying. Um, and it's an interesting movie and we'll get to that. Uh, it takes place uh, in Soviet Central Asia um, during the final years of uh, the Basmachi Revolt, which I had to look up because I wasn't uh, very versed in this thing. Um, the best I can tell is this took place around like mostly like Kazakhstan and Turkestan and maybe, maybe Northern Afghanistan. I'm not sure, but at any rate, like it didn't take place in like sand dunes and stuff, but they use those nonetheless because the, the water situation just looks so much more desperate when you're surrounded by an ocean of sand, doesn't it? Um, and then Trinadsat was remade as Sahara in 1943. And it's interesting because you'd think that Sahara would be a straight up remake of, of the earlier American film, the lost patrol, but it's really not. It has a lot more in common with the Soviet film. So, uh, and that's, and that changed the setting to Libya. And that was actually made during a war, um, as opposed to the other, uh, versions of the story. So it's interesting to watch the three movies in release order because each one kind of adds an extra level of desperation to the soldier's predicament and kind of like an extra layer of sort of humanist commentary, I guess. Um, And uh, an extra layer of like kind of political propaganda from the time period after um, John Ford's thing. Maybe maybe John Ford's movie has some commentary, but I, I we'll get to that. So The Lost Patrol is the most different from the other three because in it the soldier's biggest problem is that they're just completely lost and their guide has been killed and the brigade does not know where to find them um so it's a situation where unlike in the other two movies the the heroes of this movie aren't defending like a trickling well but they they have a bountiful oasis and like uh, palm trees and like dates and stuff they can eat so they could survive here for a very long time the problem is this isn't their home of course and uh sooner or later the enemy will find them um which is exactly what happens uh uh, a, a small but formidable group of Arab or Kurdish sharpshooters, I would say. The movie never says. You don't really see them until the very, very end. Um, but just from what I was able to gather uh, from, you know, descriptions of the of the the war in the Middle East, World War One, and, and which sides were which, um, the 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 Bedouin tribe, like the one that I know most from the movie Lawrence of Arabia. Um, they were allied with, uh, with, uh, Great Britain and France and, um, the Ottoman empire, kind of like the, the very end tail end of the Ottoman empire. This kind of was the final nail in their coffin, but they were allied with, um, uh, a few other Arab tribes and, uh, probably the Kurds. Um, so that gives you also an idea of like where this, this, this movie, uh, the story predates like the drawing of all the boundary lines of what we now know to be the middle East world war one had a apparently a huge impact on that. I cannot believe I'm talking about this much history in a, in a, what's supposed to be a star Wars podcast yet. Here we are. So they're surrounded by probably about six, uh, sharpshooters and, but you can't, they don't really know how many there are cause they can't see them. They're really good at hiding. They know the land, they know the territory. They're not outsiders. And unlike the other versions of the movie, they're also not kind of desperate for water. They probably came across the, the British, uh, uh, troops by accident because they were, you know, going to get their, uh, water and food and everything else, um, themselves, but they don't seem to be, there's no issue with them needing anything. They're just surrounding the Brits and they, and, and trying to pick them off one by one. And they do a pretty good job of that. The heroes don't really interact with them at all. We don't even see them until the very end. Um, and the drama in this movie comes mostly from the interactions among the Tommies themselves, the Tommies being, you know, the British soldiers during world war one, like GI Joe, you know, that kind of thing. That's that kind of nickname. And they kind of represent, I mean, so it's a, it's a British story. So naturally like there's some class class uh, clash of uh, social classes, social hierarchies at work here. Cause the British are obsessed with that. Um, you know, like they're still making stuff like Downton Abbey to this day. And, and they, I don't know why, but they never get tired of this, this uh, class struggle in, in, in English society. But um, so that's where a lot of the information, you know, the, a lot of the drama comes from. And the main interesting part is Boris Karloff's character. Boris Karloff, of course, played uh, Frankenstein's monster in the original, you know, uh, the, not the original, but the classic universal horror film, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein and Son of Frankenstein. And um, in this one, he plays a uh, British soldier who is like a religious zealot who pretty quickly loses his mind in the tedium of waiting around uh, at this uh, little fort. And he, 
he uh, he becomes a threat to the safety of the other soldiers. And there's uh, some other stuff there. I mean, if there there may have been more there may have been more like social commentary amongst like, or, or like, uh, like subtle clues, but I don't even think that John Ford would know about that stuff either. Um, or the writers. I'm not really sure what's there. Uh, but, uh, if there's any message to it, I, I couldn't really find one. Um, the heroism in the lost patrol is all over the place. It's plentiful, but it's kind of meaningless. And the same is true of like the sacrifices. Like the heroes aren't really fighting for anything, but their own survival. Um, perhaps the story is commenting kind of on the nature of, uh, world war one itself. Uh, it's kind of like an example of how, uh, how quickly like a seemingly like a uh, sensible plan can turn into a bloodbath, which is if, um, if you're interested in world war one, uh, history, which I, I knew very little about until I listened to, uh, the great, uh, podcast, uh, hardcore history that, uh, that guy did a series on the great war. Um, it's like it probably takes over 10 hours to listen to the entire thing, but it's really fascinating. And it gives you a great idea of just how horrible this thing was. Um, as an American, uh, coming in a product of American history classes, the, the, this war was never, um, really made a big deal of because, uh, the United States got into it relatively late and the losses it suffered were relatively slight compared to European countries in which like an entire generation of uh, young men was completely wiped out almost. Um, so there's like the most chilling scene of this movie is uh, probably my favorite scene too, is where the the soldiers on the ground um, realize that a, a British uh, uh, fighter pilot in a biplane or a scout plane or something, a scout pilot or something, has spotted them from the air. And he's circling around. And at first they're really excited because it's like, oh, he's going to go back to the base. He's going to tell everybody where he found us and we're going to be rescued. We're going to be saved. And then they realize that this idiot is actually going to land the plane and say hello, which means he's going to get shot. And so as he's landing the plane and getting out, and there's all the racket from the engine, they're like, no, no, go back. No, no, no. Watch out. Watch out. And then, of course, he gets shot dead immediately. Um, so uh, he, he, I, I don't think he ever even knows what's going on. Um, the heroes end up, I think, uh, just like in Sahara, they end up using the machine guns from the plane. Um, and then they burn the plane to kind of create a signal fire, um, to attract British attention. Of course, this is risky because you're also attracting the attention of everybody else. But, um, since they're already facing the enemy, I guess it's not a big deal when the enemy finally like advances on them. Only one guy's left and he's got the, uh, the machine gun and he's picking them off. There's only like, I think six, uh, it turns out there's only like six, uh, six uh, sharpshooters out there and um the last one thinks he gets him but he only like winged his elbow or something and so the guy like brushes himself off picks himself up and guns the guy down it's like a pretty brutal scene and then right at that moment just like moments later the the you know the brigade arrives and they come in and and the first thing they're asked is uh, where are your men and the sergeant gestures towards a series of burial mounds in the sand, each one with like their little like cavalry savers jammed into it. Um, it's a pretty stirring ending. So this movie, The Lost Patrol, was remade, uh, as I said earlier, <clears throat> and released around 1936 and 1937 in the Soviet Union as uh, And I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing that correctly. And it, this, this version of the story adds several elements to it that will later appear in Sahara. Uh, most importantly, I think it reduces the bubbling oasis to kind of the slow dripping desert well. And it also sort of, recon- I mean, not sort of, it definitely recognizes the humanity of the enemy. All, all sides of the conflict are, are equally desperate for water, uh, just as in Sahara. The one unique thing about Trinatsat is that the heroes are not actually stranded. They remain by the well by choice. Uh, all of them are actually uh, on their way home. I think of the 13, 10 are... Uh, soldiers in the Red Army who have completed their tour of duty. They've been trying to hunt down this local warlord, uh, but they never got him, and now they're being sent home, and they're they're on a march to a railroad station where they're going to be able to go back home and end their careers in the Army and, and uh, go back to regular civilian life. Um, and then the other two characters are, there's one uh, scientist, I think, although he's, I think it's implied that he is supposed to be from that area, but I don't know for sure. Maybe not. Maybe he's just like uh, he's just an older man who's like probably a geologist of some kind or geological surveyor. And he's going back too. and then there's a woman in the group who is the wife of the commanding officer. She has very, very little to do in the movie. Um, It's it's interesting to see uh, how 
I, I think she's supposed to be idealized, but like, I'm not sure I recognize what the, the idealized virtues of, uh, like beautiful Soviet communist womanhood was in the mid thirties. So it's, it's hard to say whether there's supposed to be something defining about her character other than that. She's perfect. Um, but it is interesting that she's there. Uh, this doesn't create the same kinds of problems it does in um, the movie uh, Letter Never Sent, which is another movie that was uh, watched, uh, screened uh, before The Last Jedi cast. Um, so yeah, they, they, they. So like I said, they're all they're all uh, on their way back home, and the ten soldiers in particular, or eleven soldiers, I guess, uh, would be. They're they're done, and, and but they decide that hey, wait a second, we just found a well and uh, two giant uh, uh, machine guns that belong to this local warlord. I can't remember his name, but they realize if we wait here, they'll have to come back, and they'll be at a disadvantage because they'd only be coming here if they were running out of water, or and or supplies. Um, so we wait until they get here, and we can either kill this warlord or capture him. So they stay kind of out of a sense of duty. Um, they're going to bring him, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's hard to sympathize, to, uh, today. And probably even at the time, if you, if you weren't, uh, you know, a, a citizen of the USSR, it's hard to sympathize with like the hero's end goal, because what they're really doing is they're, they're forcibly converting central Asia to, to Sovietism, um, the soldiers and the two non-combatants traveling with them. They, but they, you can't, you can't say that these people don't die for a reason. It all ends the same way as it does in the Lost Patrol. But uh, it's, you know, they, there's, they have a purpose to to their deaths. It's not just a, a horrible accident like it is in the Lost Patrol. Um, it's probably, I mean, in that sense, it's the least relatable. Of course, there's a language barrier barrier issue, um, but it's also like there's just, it's like, there's a lot of it's there's a lot of emphasis placed on their like them doing what's right as citizens and, and doing what's right for the greater good of of uh, the motherland and all that and how they're they're you know going to assist in in doing something that is really kind of indefensible of basically imposing their system of government on an unwilling um, region of the globe that wants nothing to do with this and um, in real life I believe the Soviets only kind of succeeded when they agreed to just let everybody who lived there do what they wanted. Um, they didn't make them like renounce their religion or anything like that. I, I did enjoy watching it because it's probably the most artistically uh, presented version of the story. There's a great scene where in all three versions of the movie, there's a guy that gets sent away. One person like the best writer or the best, whatever um, is sent away to try and get help. And in, I think the, a few versions, I think in the, in this one, he is actually found, but right. But he's, he's uh he's the best horse rider and he makes a fair amount of progress. And then he collapses, horse crap collapses. And then he starts walking and then you see him just collapse, just like about ready to die of thirst. And he's clawing his way desperately up a giant sand dune. And the, the camera keeps going you know, showing him like thirsty, parched, just desperate for, for water. And then showing just like beautiful shots of like the rivulets of sand, like kind of cascading down crumbling sand dunes that look very, very much like water, like liquid, um, like this ocean of, of, of dirt and sand and dust and wind. It's, it's, it's really incredible. It looks great. Um, and Sahara really follows, takes all of its cues from Trinatsad. It doesn't, doesn't really look back to uh, the Lost Patrol nearly as much as you'd, you'd think it would. Um, yeah, it follows the it follows the plot and story beats pretty faithfully, um, but in a weird way, it's actually more propaganda ish than the Soviet version of the story. And I think this is almost certainly because it was made during World War II, uh, at a time when Hollywood was pumping out a lot of movies that were kind of designed to kind of remind. They were designed to remind moviegoers kind of like why the United States was fighting what it was fighting for. And you see it in how Bogart treats uh, the two POWs that he finds um, and how, and the different ways in which these two kind of prisoners respond to his kindness. So Giuseppe, the Italian um, kind of like once, once they take him on and say, okay, you can come with us. You know, he, you know, he offered like, first of all, like he begs for his life. Um, 
in a way that I think most, most of us could, could definitely understand doing in that situation. And it says, you know, I won't, you know, I won't, I just need a drop of water. Just please, you know, give it to me. I, I'll, I won't, I won't ask for anything. I won't ask for food. Um, but once, once they show him mercy, he, uh, very quickly, he, it, it, it endears, uh, the, it endears the uh, Americans and British soldiers to him. It, it uh, he sees their humanity and uh, sees them as he tries to get to know them. He tries to speak with them, tries to communicate with them. He is not interested um, in going back. He doesn't want to escape. Uh, so, and he says something to when he's arguing with the the German pilot who who is trying to escape. Who's saying like, "Now is our chance. Like if we go now, we can uh, tell my uh, tell the Germans that." Uh, that the well is dry and they'll be saved and we'll be heroes. And he, and, and, you know, they'll, we'll, we'll kill all of these, these idiots and, and we'll be out of here. And, and Giuseppe says something to the effect of like, you, I just wear my uniform on my body. I don't wear it on my soul and I have no interest in going back. And then he gives, frankly, a kind of like way over the top, heavy handed, ridiculous, unbelievable speech about how, uh, the pro- the difference between Mussolini and Hitler is that Mussolini kind of sucks at his job, which is to say that Mussolini can't actually hasn't succeeded in completely brainwashing the entire country. And they're still, you know, he and his countrymen are still very aware of how, of what's going on and that they, that, uh, and then he ends it all up with, by saying like, you know, your Fuhrer is the, is the reason why my God created a hell or something like that. And then of course, uh, uh, the German pilot stabs him and, and leaves. Um, it doesn't really work. I mean, there's a lot of things working against the scene, but I don't really think that I need to explain them. I might just put in the, the actual audio from the scene and you can kind of decide for yourself. I think what works a little bit better is earlier on where the German pilot, uh, refuses to basically refuses to take any orders or, or be associated with or talk to in any way. Um, the Sudanese, uh, uh, soldier, Sergeant Tambul, because he's a black man and the, to, to the, to the, the Nazi pilot, this, he's like, it's beneath him. What are you smiling at? Verstehe nicht, was Sie meinen. Ich kann Sie nicht begreifen. Die englische Achterarmee ist vernichtet und Sie wollen mit dieser merkwürdigen Gruppe hier weiterfechten. He thinks it funny that we should want to go on fighting with this curious detachment. Amerikaner, Engländer, Franzosen, Neger. Wipe that smile off your push or I'll knock your teeth through the top of your head. I think it, it plays a lot better. Number one, he's not faking a, a like a Mario Super Mario Brothers esque Italian accent when he does it. But also, it's like you know, it's Humphrey Bogart. Like, but yeah, that's kind of like you can see like the propaganda value of this, right? Like, so Tambul Tambul is an interesting character. Sergeant Tambul is, um, for one, he is thankfully played by an actual um, uh, black actor, uh, and he is definitely not a step and fetch it type caricature. He is definitely a character who is treated as the equal of all the other characters. And I think that's definitely a message that the writer of the movie was uh, trying to convey. Although at the time, this was not a uh, big political deal. Um, He's also um, a Muslim. So there is an interesting conversation between him and I believe the character Waco, uh, who is named Waco because he's from Waco, Texas. And it's uh, it's an interesting uh, situation where Waco kind of has this idea about Oh, I heard, I heard, uh, you know, he's not being condescending, but he's asking, you know, he's curious and he's like, I, I hear you, uh, your people have, uh, you know, multiple wives and Sergeant Tombul like responds like with, uh, I have no idea whether it's accurate or not. You know where Texas is? It must be very far. He said it. I'm going back there when this is finished. I got married just before I left. Good. Good. It's, it's better than that. But I guess you fellows feel differently about marrying. The boys up top are telling me you Mohammedans have as many as 300 wives. No. The prophet tells us that four wives are sufficient for a true believer. Why four? Hmm? The prophet says one wife makes a miserable life, but she always gets bored. And two wives make a mess of your life also. Well, they always quarrel and you never know which one is right. And three wives are bad too. But two always take sides against the third. There are four wives. <laughs> Makes real happiness. Oh. Mm-hmm. Two and two accompany by each other. And the man, he has his rest. That sounds all right. You got four, huh? 
No, I have only one. What's holding you back? Well, if you had this law in your Texas, would you have four wives? No. My wife wouldn't like that. <laughs> it is the same with me. My wife, she would not like it. You sure learn things in the Army. Yes, we both have much to learn from each other. Yeah. It's not, like, again, it's not, it's something that could have been a caricature, and it's not. And, uh... It's kind of like there's, I mean, a little bit of misogyny in there uh, in, in his like uh, speech about like why four wives are the optimal number of wives. Uh, but it's not it doesn't make him seem like backward or barbaric or anything like that. It's interesting. It's just a way of showing like that the the good guys on in this fight are. um Are all in th- are, are all in this together. The basic message of it is that like it's recognizing the humanity in each other and everyone. And it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's heavy handed, but it's like, yeah, we all need food. We all need water. Um, and we all need uh, companionship. We all love our, uh, our homes and we miss our families. And, and, uh, although, uh, it may be, uh, Giuseppe's job to shoot at the Americans and British soldiers while he's employed as a soldier, while that's his duty, like once his duty, his duty ends, as far as he's concerned, once he's been captured and he's not a, bad person and he realizes that what he was fighting for is is uh is both foolish and immoral you know she's a big man he speaks like a thunderstorm and you guys believe him he tells me he knows the best everywhere he writes his mottos on the walls on the street so we got him in the brain we must believe these mottos lavorare credere obedire what does that mean obey believe work obey he kind of thinks he's God, don't he? Yeah, he thinks. But I think maybe Hitler is a God and Mussolini is just his prophet. <laughs> now, don't you worry. Someday that guy's going to blow up and bust. Well, Signore, for some people he's all right to laugh at the luci. But when you got a wife and a baby, it's no good to laugh. My little... There's, basically, the message is like, Yes, we're fighting in a war. Yes, we're going to have to kill people. Uh, yes, there are people who look a lot like us. I mean, you notice that they don't have this, uh, you don't see this kind of problem in a lot of war era movies when you're dealing with fighting the Japanese. Although I will say, I'm also at this time watching just for my own edification, um, The Flying Tigers, which is a, I think it was either made during the war or shortly after. And it's about a sort of volunteer group of uh, fighter pilots, American fighter pilots who uh, is uh kind of volunteers to to uh fly missions against the japanese in china and that movie is actually very effective um it's not a great movie but it's actually very effective at showing like the plight of the of the chinese people who um the the you just got to look it up i don't want to get into it but basically like they suffered a lot it does a great the movie does a great job of like showing like the the soldiers like it even has like a pilot who goes kind of from being like i don't give you know i'm just here i'm, I'm doing this because i can make the most money the fastest way and because i'm a hot pilot etc cetera, etc cetera. and then he meets like the kids who had to evacuate their homes some of whom walked hundreds of miles to find a safe place to stay after their families were killed in, in bombing uh missions and, and things like that and they're you know it's 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 interesting i mean it's that's an example of how when there's a reason to to look at, at, at it, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting way off the mark and I, I, sh- I should not be talking about this stuff. But yeah, I mean, what does this have to do with Star Wars? So how to tie this in? Like I would say what it has to do with The Last Jedi is I honestly don't know. Like I think that it's going to be something to do with the the resistance holding up on that uh, like kind of mineral planet crate. Um, there's an old rebel base there apparently and um, they go there because they have nowhere else to go and they're kind of stuck. They're cut off from everything. They're surrounded. And, but then it's on set, but that would be on such a huge scale. I just, this is such a small, small scale story. And it, it, it's hard to see how you scale it up. I guess it's about like, these movies are about, they're about uh, human beings at their most uh, pitiful, at their weakest state, at their most desperate position. And it's about how uh, some some ideologies will see adversity and hardship and it in their their ideology their culture encourages them to encourages them to uh 
reach out to their fellow man and uh, bring him or her into the fold and do their best to to basically show compassion to them. Um, and there are other ideologies that encourage their adherents to do the exact opposite. In fact, to take advantage of another's hospitality and generosity. And that to me is interesting. I guess the, the closest relation I could make is actually to the force awakens, because I think that even from the very early concepts of the story, it seems like even early on, like in Michael Arndt's draft, um, it began with, uh, a certain person, some, some kind of resistance, oriented uh character being captured and tortured and um and a stormtrooper sees this and just cannot stomach it and realizes i've got to i've got to do the right thing and get him out of here and go and i think that the way it originally happened um was not quite as effective as the way it ended up happening i'm not sure when the change took place of course because we don't have drafts of those early drafts of the scripts but um that's what it seems like whoever made the change and whenever it was made that you have actually Finn participating in what is a, like an, a massacre. Like it is the most, I don't think people give that, that movie enough credit for what it did in those opening scenes, because that looks like reality. That's like, it's yeah, they're in like plastic suits and stuff like that. And they're shooting like, you know, laser beams. But you know, when you see like, uh, like, and you see like rubber face, like, you know, aliens like screaming for mercy and, and like searching desperately for their children. I mean, that is a, that is a brutal scene and it it's exactly as brutal as it needs to be because it's a way of showing like, you know, the awakening as it were of Finn's conscience. And he's like, I'm not going to be a party to this. Like, I know this is wrong. I don't want to do this. And if I just, I could probably make myself do it, but I don't want to do it. There's no, you know, I, I, I'm done with this. I'm going to find a way to get out of here. And, and then he does, he finds, you know, Poe and, and like a year as if I set him free, he'll be able to fly a ship and get me out of here. And then I can run away. And, and I think that we're going to be dealing with that a little bit in, in the last Jedi from what we're told, but I don't, I, I really don't know how it's going to work out because I don't think that there's anything this small a scale. So the real question is like, is it something about like the way the, cause again, I, I had this discussion with, um, King Tom in the last episode about what exactly is the point of screening uh, movies for actors if they're if you're not hoping that the actors' performances will be informed by those movies. I guess one one uh, Star Wars connection I definitely see not really a connection but something that I think would have informed or could have informed some of the actors' performances is I think we'll see a little bit of Bogart's character in uh, John Boyega's character in, in Finn. Um, and the reason why I say this is because I have a feeling that Finn's going to be kind of uh, mean or a little bit rude to Rose. Um, and that he, she is said to look up to him and, uh, he is said to still be like, as far as he's concerned, like Ray made it out safe. So the reason why he joined up with the resistance and fought is over. Like he saved his friend, um, and, and almost died doing it. And now it's kind of like, I still want to get out of here. Like I've done my part and who can say he hasn't like the star killer base is gone because he risked his life to do it. But He's kind of, you know, in his, in his opinion, he's kind of like, it's time to get out of here. Like I'm done. I, I've done my part. I'm out of here. But he's now, um, through no, uh, intent of his own, a war hero. And I, and supposedly Rose Tico, um, looks up to him for this. And this is, uh, Kelly Marie Tran's character. And I, I think he's going to be kind of dismissive of her at first, perhaps. And that's definitely something you see in Bogart's character in Sahara is that Bogart is very, I mean, almost the first thing he does is, is kind of, um, I, I include the quote at the beginning of this episode, the scene where he, he, he does a very Han Solo-esque defense of his, uh, his tank, uh, the Lulu Bell and how, uh, you know, she may not look like much, but she's got to where it counts, that kind of thing. Um, but also he kind of treats the, he's a little bit hostile, maybe perhaps to the French uh, the free French army soldier who is with the, the British at first. I mean, his very thing is like, what are you looking at? Cause he's upset. I mean, he's at a general retreat. He's, you know, almost all the men in his command were, were, were killed and he's kind of in a bad mood, but he does want to help people out. And the Frenchman of course wants, uh, wants, wants Bogart cigarettes. And so he's like, here, have, have some. And, uh, and he, he, uh, takes a shine to, to the French guy pretty quickly. Um, and I think that's going to be like, you know, like that, that kind of like begrudging kindness. Like I really don't want to be nice. I don't, I just kind of want to get on my way. I don't want to do 
you know, be friendly and try to help these people necessarily. Like I, I really just want to get out of here, but I know it's the right thing to do. I kind of got to do it. And there's sort of an interesting clash there, a kind of like, and we've, I think we all know what this is like, you know, um, you know, when, when you're in a bad mood and you, and you know it, and, uh, you like the last thing you want to do is to, um, be friendly to somebody who's like a stranger on the bus who wants to talk to you for some reason. And you really just want to, want to zone out and do nothing, but you do your best to, uh, to, to be personable. And, uh, sometimes, you know, you find, uh, you, you can make a friend that way with uh another thing that i think is is interesting is the way that or that could that could pop up is um the way that uh the british the the british captain and decides that uh he's going to put um humphrey bogart's character in charge he's going to basically he he rank technically he ranks uh bogart right so bogart's a sergeant this the the captain is a captain and the men don't want to take orders from bogart because bogart's telling them like don't you know, he's trying to ration the, the water they have. This is early on before they find the well. And he's like, that's enough. Don't, don't, uh, you know, don't drink the water and, and, and um, you know, don't drink too much. And why should we listen to you? You know, and, and then uh, the captain, British captain says, you know, look, yes, technically I rank him. But as far as like the, the day to day, you know, the, the simple everyday operation of the unit, like it, it's going to be him. We're going to defer to we're going to defer to his judgment. He's done fine uh, commanding this tank crew so far. And uh, he's, it's better to do that. And I think that could be interesting because we might see that in either Poe or Admiral Holdo, um, those, those characters and, or Leia and a situation where there's kind of some dissension in the ranks of, of who's in, really in charge here. And somebody's going to have to be the bigger person and say, you know, really like this is, this is so-and-so's territory stick with them. And there's a kind of like, military heroics element to it that that could very well end up being uh, a part of some of the actors performances so it'll be interesting to see i mean i think the basic theme of sahara and the kind of heroism it, it really has i'll say this like i love when star wars deals with basic uh dangers that anyone can understand i like it when the peril facing the the heroes is something that anybody can grasp. And although I think that like the need to drink water to survive is kind of perhaps a little bit too mundane for star Wars. Like it's the idea that you could, the idea of being in a, in a, in a difficult survival situation is not completely alien to the, to the franchise. Like really like the need to like for warmth to keep your body temperature up is a big part of the beginning of the empire strikes back. Right. And that's, that's a big part of the danger as we understand it to Luke and to Han is that you know, it's so cold that they're going to freeze. Like even their tauntauns drop dead, you know, from the cold. And it's just, it works in a way because it's dealing with a, and you know, to a lesser extent, you see this also at the beginning of star Wars where it's like about two droids, like lost in the desert. And it's like, it just shows how like, you know, the sun is just beating down on the sand in a way that just tells you like, Oh man, nobody's gonna, nobody can survive this. They better find somebody soon. Or even, even a droid would get, would get baked alive out there. And that is, uh, I think that works in Star Wars better than than people might think. I th- I, I think that uh, survival issues of like easily relatable real world dangers are they they work really well in Star Wars, and it's just a way of because you know don't forget like really what Star Wars is at, at its best is it's just a regular adventure movie with regular adventure movie problems, but it takes place in space and the costumes are crazy cool. And it's got spaceships and stuff, but everything in the best star Wars movies is like, you could just copy and paste it into a different kind of movie and it would still work. Um, with the exception of the one thing that makes star Wars unique, which is the force and Jedi. Um, and in that is even like, you know, you look at the, that is even used pretty sparingly in most of the movies, I would say. Um, the really only the, the the only exceptions being the the three prequel movies, which have like Jedi jumping around everywhere, and it you know it's a different thing. It's a very different thing. It's going for. Um, but the all the other movies, like the, a normal Star Wars movie, let's say, or like the average Star Wars movie, does not have a lot of that, and it's a lot more de- dealing with stuff that you could understand in like a war movie or a western or or. Uh, uh, a Japanese samurai costume drama or something like that. They're all things that work in other capacities. Anyway, speaking of bringing survival stuff to star Wars, 
I wanted to talk about our little chaser for today, which is Hoth Stuff. As I said, the worst titled uh, Star Wars story ever, I believe. Um, and this is, uh, I mean, this is really, uh, I don't know how good of a story it is exactly, but it works. Uh, it, it's, it's worth checking out and I'll, I'll tell you why. Well, first let me summarize it. How about that? So what I'm talking about specifically here is volume one of Marvel's Star Wars, you know, being the, the original Marvel run on Star Wars. This is issue 78. It was published in, uh, December, 1983. Um, it was written by David, uh, Michelini. Um, and drawn by a guy named Luke McDonald. I am not enough of a comics nerd to really know who either of these people are. I know that they're not the original writer and artist on the Star Wars line, and they were not the final writer or artists on Star Wars. Um, they're somewhere in the middle. It was released after, obviously, uh, Return of the Jedi, So it's, but it's still dealing with the time period between Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. And it takes place, uh, apparently it takes place several months, possibly even a year after Empire Strikes Back, but probably not. At this time, it wasn't really established how much time had passed in between the, the two movies. I believe now the official party line is that it's about like six months, um, which to me seems way too fast. But then again, nothing really seems to have happened to Luke in the meantime because he's like doesn't even go back to Dagobah to, to finish his training until it's you know kind of too late. So it couldn't have been that long, I suppose. Um, but yeah, so like it's this December, you know, it they. they so, so Luke, I, I think this is supposed to be, let's say, let's say this takes place five months after the empire strikes back. Um, it's, it's a, it's a longish period of time. So Luke, Leia and a rogue squadron pilot named Lieutenant Barlin Hightower, who I believe has never heard from before. And it was never heard from since. Um, they're all three of them somehow squeezed into a single Y wing fighter, which in this comic book has four seats two two by two. Um, I don't know how that works. Uh, but they're, the entire ship is horribly off model in most panels. Um, and they're chasing down like this uh, derelict transport, a damaged transport ship that looks like it might contain survivors from the Battle of Hoth. And Luke is convinced that his buddy Wedge Antilles is one of those survivors that, that Wedge Antilles might be on board. And he uh, Leia finds a sort of audio diary on the ship where it's just Wedge describing his ordeal. And so what happened to Wedge, apparently, is he says that he and his gunner, um, Jansen, good shot, Jansen, that guy, um, were shot down um, when they were trying to flee the Echo Base. And so Wedge is fine, but Jansen is seriously wounded. And um, they end up seeking shelter in the ruins of Echo Base and uh, discover that uh, very quickly that uh, Lord Vader has left a Star Destroyer in Haas orbit and has uh, fighters patrolling the entire planet at... uh, you know, some kind of basically they're just looking They're They're convinced. I guess the implication is like, there's a lot of talk from wedge about how, like whatever Lord Vader was looking for, he looked thoroughly cause he tore this place apart. And like, you know, we all know now, or we all know cause we've seen the movie that Darth Vader is looking for Luke Skywalker. And so he wants to find, he's probably trying to stop every rebel, um, he can find who escapes, uh, so he can interrogate them and find out where Luke is. And, this means that Wedge is kind of stuck on the planet, Wedge and Jansen, and they're uh, they keep watching the skies, and and uh, the Star Destroyer doesn't leave, and weeks go by, and uh, luckily they find some like old uh, uh, military rations in the Echo Base, and they're able to survive. But Jansen isn't doesn't seem to be getting any better. He really needs to get to the hospital, and uh, Wedge is having trouble um, figuring out how they're going to get off the planet. Now they don't have a ship, and. Uh, then, uh, one day wedges, uh, out like once they run out of food, he starts killing like little, you know, animals in the area and bringing the meat back. And one day he comes back from a hunting trip and finds that Jansen has been, uh, it's not clear how he was killed, but somebody just cut him up and, uh, mutilated him essentially, uh, whether he, you know, it's not clear what happened or why, but, um, uh, wedge, uh, figure, you know, notices tracks uh entering and exiting the base he realizes there was some kind of person who had come in here but um and then he goes out and he realizes oh it's scavengers um and there's like a bunch of like weird looking aliens uh um with a with a ship of their own um and they have landed on the planet and they're picking it clean for like military hardware and stuff just basically what ray does at the beginning of the force awakens um and which has a very low opinion of scavengers of course because he sees them as people who are like profiting off of the war by, uh, you know, profiting off the death of, 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 you know, 
his fellow pilots and things like that. They find chunks of old ships and other guns and things like that and sell them. And um, Wedge realizes, though, if they got here without being shot down, that means that the TIE fighters, you know, the the Star Destroyer, the Empire, um, must have some, they must have figured out a gap in their routine so they were able to get down. And he also figures out, you know, or guesses that if they did that, they must have programmed that data in to to know exactly where they could escape and how they could escape and time it and um so if he can get on a ship he'll be able to if he can steal one of their ships he'll be able to get out of there and survive and he won't get caught by the empire and so he uh creates a distraction as you know as adventure type hero guys do uh steals a transport and uh, gets it out of there and and um he just has the transport going on autopilot so it follows the routine and avoids the imperial patrol um the uh the people chasing him don't they forget to do that and they get shot down um and so wedge is left just like alone in this giant transport and he uh and then you know he ends the audio diary and since we've all seen even the people who read this this comic at the time and seen return of the jedi they know that wedge survives and um, sure enough, uh, Wedge uh, sees them all. They're listening to the story. Luke's convinced that Wedge has died, and Wedge is actually outside in a spacesuit watching for some reason. He had uh, figured out some way of uh, reaching a a part of the uh, transport that, w- that had um, supplies in it, and he survived. It's not really that clever of an ending, and this, the story is infamous because it introduces immediate canon problems because the author of the story confused wedge antilles with big starklighter and so there's all kinds of references in the beginning of the story to wedge's uh, boyhood on tatooine and how he and luke go way back they're like buddies from school and all that and it makes zero sense because there's nothing in the movies that really indicates anything other than that luke and wedge are basically they know each other by name and they're friendly with each other, but that's about it. And Biggs is supposed to die. He does die in in star Wars. So it messes things up a lot. It also does other weird things like imply that, uh, Hoth has uh, two sons, which the movie doesn't show that it just seems to have one son. That's less important. But, um, yeah, I mean that stuff aside, right. And it, this is, for example, I mean, if you really want to know why things like the story group exist, this is stuff like this is why, because you don't want to have this happen where somebody makes an honest, uh, easy mistake to make. Um, they may not have even had the, the movies on uh, home video in 1983 at that point. I think they might have been out, but, you know, the writer may not have been able to afford those a VCR and all that stuff. So who knows? Who knows what the story is? But they made a mistake and nobody caught it. And it was just kind of this weird thing that was out there floating around in nobody really knew what to do with it. I think the story was eventually retconned to be kind of like a tall tale that wedge, uh, tells periodically, but really everything from it's forgotten. That said, I think the story is pretty good. Um, it's not a great, it, it's, it's an interesting star Wars story cause it's about a person other than, you know, one of the three main heroes and it, tells you a lot about the world and it makes it look a little bit, feel a little bit more realistic. This is something that you can imagine happening and it's worth checking out just because the artwork's pretty good. Um, Wedge doesn't really look anything like Wedge, uh, but, uh, but, but every other character in it looks, looks good. And um, it's an interesting look at the, I think I like the, the brief period, you know, the brief few pages that deal with the scavengers is really interesting because it's an example of something that is so like, none of the original trilogy movies or even the prequel trilogy movies deal with scavengers really as, as far as I can tell, there's nobody who is profiting off of uh, the, the star Wars as it were by collecting junk and selling it. Um, but in real life, that's what happens uh, after every major battle. Like it happened. Um, actually it's a, it's a, it's a minor plot point in the movie, the seven samurai because, uh, Toshiro Mifune's character is actually a, not a real samurai. He's a farmer who or a son of a farmer who just went off to make a, you know, seek adventure, make a name for himself as a warrior, despite having no noble status, but he knows about the farmer's way of life. So when they come back to protect the farmer's village to share with me, they're complaining, Oh, the farmers don't have any weapons. Like, how are we going to get them to defend this village? And to share character says, are you kidding me? Like, what do you think they do after a big battles? Like they all run out to the battlefield and they take stuff and go search under like, you know, 
the hay bales and you'll find uh, katana and other and, you know armor and stuff like that, that they they took off of your corpses samurai and um this is really offensive to the samurai just like it would be offensive to anyone really if you're a soldier and you see somebody has been looting the corpses of your buddies uh you probably wouldn't feel too good about that um so it's something that you know would have to happen in this in a, even in a galaxy far far away and sure enough it eventually like like a lot of these things the stuff that logically you think would be a part of the galaxy is a later writer decides that it is literally a part of it it has to be there and that's what that's what ray does and there's an entire economy in built around this on jakku where there's a planet where there's really nothing else you can do with it you can't farm on it you can't there's no factories that we see and the main export is junk um so i think that's really cool um i also like how it shows like luke having uh, a close attachment to another one of his fighter pilot buddies it the star wars comics especially at this time um between before empire strikes back was released uh they dealt a lot with luke as a um soldier he was a commander of some sort a fighter pilot and realistically that's what his main adventures would be about he doesn't really know um how to be a jedi or what jedi even were he hasn't really been properly trained prior to meeting yoda so a lot of his adventures are going to be like fighter pilot type adventures and his close relationships would be with in addition to leia and han would be with the other fighter pilots and someone like wedge who tends to survive in each movie um he'd probably get to know him very very well and of course this is something that was picked up on um by you know expanded universe novels and stuff in like the 90s and things like that like they established that hey wedge is wedge must have a pretty good relationship with luke they they must have fought side by side in like the three to five years between star wars and empire so one of the things i am remiss to like i haven't done um in the previous episodes for these star wars chasers i like to say whether i think i want to say whether they're you know of course they're obviously not canon but like whether they should be a part of like the para canon or or the pseudo canon or something like the the stories that remain influential that are still worth checking out um for whatever insight they offer on um the world of star wars and you know, for like Gambler's World, the first one I did with with uh, Emily Lind, the the comic strip one, I, I kind of got to say, yeah, probably not. Um, it's worth looking at if you're curious, but I don't know whether the story itself or any of the stuff that's introduced in it really tells you that is is really a, a particularly good representation of, of the Star Wars story. Um, the other one, uh, X Wing, um, I do endorse the X Wing Rogue Squadron by Michael Stackpole. I think at least that first novel, I have to go over and revisit the other there's a lot of other ones that were released in a very short period of time. And I haven't read most of them, but the, the at least the first one I think is definitely belongs in the pseudo canon. Um, the Wookiee genome project, uh, hall of fame, the stuff that every star Wars fan should check out. I think that is one of them. And Hoth stuff is probably somewhere in between. I'd say it's not really essential. Um, but it is, uh, it's interesting for the reasons I said, like it's, it looks good. It's, it's a, it's an interesting little story. It's a one issue thing. It's over fast and you don't, it doesn't overstay its welcome, I guess. And yeah, there's a lot of Canon weirdness in it, but you know what? None of it's Canon anymore anyway. So it doesn't really matter. Just like roll with it. Like you can easily ignore the tattooing stuff. Um, the core of the story is still interesting and it does still deal with some like, you know, so I'll say, yeah, I'll say, yeah, let's, let's, let's keep it in. Let's keep it in the, uh, the pseudo Canon. Um, so anyway, that's it. Uh, that's all for this episode. It's done. It's over with uh, no coffee break for this one um, because I'm doing the whole thing by myself. So if you really need to hear more of my voice, uh, get help, I guess. Um, nobody needs more of that. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Let me know how uh, the solo version of the show sounded to you, whether it was good enough. And if you honestly, if you didn't like it and you feel like it works better with uh, uh, other people involved, um, I'd probably agree with you and I would like to hear about what you liked and disliked. So please let me know. Hit me up on Twitter at GC9X. Uh, when you hear this, I believe the uh, Kessel toy run is still ongoing. So definitely make a point to download uh, or, or buy that episode from Bandcamp um, from the blue harvest special holiday edition episode and uh, donate uh, some toys and or donate some toys through Amazon. Check it out um, at the Kessel toy run, I think on Twitter. And, uh, 
see what else is oh and you can check out my other show it's uh, hardcore gaming 101 um, it's a podcast about video games uh, we cover new video games old video games and we're ranking them on a big dumb list um, uh, relative to each other and you nominate games it's really interesting the other hosts on the show are really great uh, and they really know their stuff it's a great thing to listen to if you're even sort of interested in, in um, digging a little bit deeper into in the world of, of uh, weird old video games especially um, so anyway that's it and uh, until next time so long suckers, suckers.